Welcome to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns. Real people, real voices, real lives. Discussing mental health, addiction and disability in the community. Your weekly window to the real world. Welcome to Take It From Us. This is Take It From Us. Welcome into our program today. Hope you've had a great week. Uh, thanks too for all of the correspondence that's come our way via the Facebook page, facebook.com. Take it from us. Thought occurred to me last week, man, we're into April already? How quick is this year going? It's flying by. So I've made a decision, a personal decision, to try and slow things down. And, and one way in which I'm trying to do that is to be a little more mindful about my social connections. So rather than have time drift by and not talk to a friend or a mate and think, man, it's been so long since we've talked to each other or seen each other, I made the call last week to actually pick the phone up and call four of my friends, one in Australia, one in the UK, and a couple of mates here in New Zealand. Guess what? It was great. I felt really good about it, and my mates were super appreciative, and we just caught up and and chatted and made the commitment that let's not leave it so long between phone calls. Let's actually talk a little bit more and not let time drift because when when we let time drift, that's when it can appear as though time is going really, really fast. So here we are into April, and that is my commitment to try and slow things down. I just need to make that mental note that my brother in Brisbane is now two hours behind us, not three. On with the program. Uh, You'll look forward to hearing from James Nokise a little later today. He's a New Zealand comedian. He's a hell of a nice guy, and he's got a super, super story to tell us about how he gave up alcohol a few years ago and where he's at now and the fact that he's helping others now too. Um, he, how has that decision changed his approach to comedy, and why is it important we can all have a good laugh? And he will make you laugh. We'll hear from James Nokise a little bit later. He's, a, like I say, a hell of a good guy and has a really important and powerful story to tell us all. Let's talk, though, first up about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. It affects thousands of New Zealanders and their families each year. Thousands of, of young babies are born with the disorder each and every year. But at the moment, the Ministry of Health classifies this as a behavioural disorder rather than a neurological brain injury which is what it actually is. Uh, soon we will hear from a foster mum who's bringing up three children with FASD. Her name is Karen. She will tell us her story and about some of the complications that her family has faced and also the, the, the lack of care and support they have access to because, sadly, FASD seems to fall through the cracks in the way that it's classified when, when people are trying to seek support. So we'll hear from Karen shortly. I mean, this is a really important story. And at the forefront of this style of journalism is Paula Penfold. She works for Stuff Circuit. She's got a, a doco that she's just produced and put it on the Stuff website. You can see this for free. It's called Disordered. I saw it the other day. My producer, Karen, has seen it. So we here at Take It From Us would, would certainly recommend that people give themselves the opportunity to watch this, learn more about the disorder, and also our relationship in New Zealand between the mental health system and the health system and the families and the people who are suffering from FASD. It is an important one to be talking about. Paula, nice of you to join us today on Take It From Us. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Kent. I'm really happy to be here. 
Yeah, first of all, uh, well done on the documentary. It was it was tremendously put together, and obviously you're telling such an important story. What's your biggest takeaway from covering that story and putting the documentary together? That we're massively failing people with FASD, that we, like at, at, at every single stage, I mean, first of all, we don't even know how many people in this country have FASD. You know, so it's a failure from the very outset, and um, the research that we've done suggests that the figures are much, much higher than we've ever um, put out there in terms of public policy or data. So that's the first failing. The second failing is that um, most people with FASD don't even get the opportunity for assessment or diagnosis. And the third major failing is that even those who do um, have the benefit of assessment and diagnosis, even then they don't get any support really from the system in terms of disability support services. They are specifically excluded from disability support services, which just does not make any sense. Why is that? I think it's because of money, frankly, because I think even though we've never done a count, I think officials are probably aware that the numbers in New Zealand are probably staggeringly high because of the fact that we have such a terrible problem with alcohol, because of our binge drinking culture. Um, I think they're aware that if they actually dared to look, they would uncover some horrendous figures, and so they haven't so far. Uh, and, And then once you acknowledge the size of the problem, figuring out a way to address it in terms of support, you know, is going to cost a lot of money. So I suspect that the motivation for not giving the people who need it the help that they deserve is primarily financial. But it's a really false economy because, of course, those people end up costing money in other ways, like Mm. uh, through the criminal justice system, through um, drug and alcohol problems, through care and protection needs. So uh, it's a false economy to not give them the life that they deserve in the first place. Is the key nub to this issue the fact that FASD is considered a behavioural issue as opposed to, let's be honest, brain damage? Yeah, that's such a good question, and that's absolutely the problem. And so many people don't understand that, including, you know, officials and the very high levels of the ministry. It's been wrongly described in ministry documentation as a behavioural problem, which is absolutely not. It is brain damage forever caused by prenatal exposure to alcohol. That's not a behavioural issue. The problems that um, people with FASD are born with and live with for the rest of their short lives because they die prematurely as well uh, and nothing to do with any behavioural issue whatsoever. I mean, sometimes they can manifest in that way and so there can be confusion amongst, you know, poorly resourced uh, teachers and others in the health system who think that it might be something like ADHD or or another kind of behavioural thing, but... Uh, it, 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 it is not yeah. that. And when you meet the people who have it and understand how difficult their lives have been, you can see that the effect of you know, permanent lifelong brain damage is debilitating mm. in many cases. Mm. I got the sense from watching your doco that rather inconveniently for everybody, they, they don't know where to fit it into uh, a healthcare model. It's like there's no soft landing spot for this particular disorder where the appropriate 
services and help would then surround those families. Yeah, that's absolutely the issue. Um, it, and the minister acknowledged that in an interview that that not just with FASD but with other disabilities, they've been treated in kind of a siloed way between different ministries and sectors, and that there needs to be an all of government response to this issue because, of course, it crosses over into absolutely everything: education, criminal justice, justice system, care and protection. Oranga Tamariki, it's estimated that fifty percent of children have FASD. So the issues are massive, and yes, there's not um, a one-size-fits-all response or solution. There's very little solution at all. Mm. You sat down with the Minister of Health, Andrew Little. What's your sense of what he might do, if anything? My sense is that he wasn't necessarily aware of the uh, concerns from those at the coalface from clinicians and whānau and people with FASD who are living with us. I think his um, officials have uh, not intentionally misled him, but I think they've given him a rather rosy picture of progress that has been made. He disputed that. That is, that's my perspective. He disputed that that is the case. Um, I think that he does, he does have an understanding of the problems that it causes. I think... That because I met him actually when we were investigating the Tana Porter case, because of course he was diagnosed with FASD, and it was that diagnosis that led to the Privy Council quashing his convictions. And at that stage, Andrew Little was the opposition justice spokesperson, so he's been aware of this issue for quite some time. My hope is that now that people like him, the minister, and some of the officials who write policy with the best of intentions but don't necessarily meet those who have it. Maybe now that they've met some of these people who uh, appeared in our documentary, uh, one of whom sadly didn't appear in our documentary because he died during the filming of it, um, maybe once they see uh, what their lives are like, it might spur them into taking a much more serious, much closer look at how badly we've been failing them for so long. I mean, this is not a new issue. People have been asking for help Mm. since 2002 in New Zealand. So this has been, uh, as the Disability Rights Commissioner described it, the progress has been glacial and something urgently needs to be done because people are, as we saw in our documentary, they're dying waiting for help. Mm. You referenced Thomas Morrison who died sadly during the making of of your program, he was only 42 years of age and had spent a number of years sort of in prison, in and out of prison. What would his family have wanted for him? What would have been their hopes for him, given what he was battling and what he was dealing with and, and just led such a tragic life? Yeah, they wanted for him to be given the resources to get his life back on track. And the really sad thing is that through the efforts of uh, his lawyer and through a judge who understood the problem through the Special Circumstances Court, they were pretty close to affecting that and it just didn't come in time and that was a failure of health services because they just didn't instigate the, the, the response in time for Thomas Morrison. So his family just wanted some help. I mean, his grandfather, who he was living with at the time and spent much of his life with when he was out of prison, was 92. I mean, he couldn't look after Thomas, and he knew that, and he wanted somebody qualified to give him some assistance, and that just never arrived. Mm. 
another person you interviewed, a guy called Jody Chambers, has been in and out of prison 17 times. He's got no money, no resources, but seemingly nothing to help himself cope with being out in the big, bad world. What do you think happens to him? I think it's really inhumane, our response, our treatment of people like Jody. I mean, you know, fundamentally, he's one of the people who falls into the category that I spoke about at the outset. He's never had a diagnosis. And mm. clearly, we're only journalists. We're not qualified to, to make a diagnosis. But we ran, we ran his case by those who are qualified. And their assessment was that his lifetime of um, criminality and problems is likely because of his undiagnosed FASD. And we've met enough people now with FASD to see that he really fits into the pattern. So it's it's inhumane that we just let people like Jody drift in and out of prison without giving them any real interventions to help them change that, any support into employment, any support into accommodation. And the upshot, I mean, it's only a few months since we met Jody. Currently, he's living on the streets in Wellington. Mm. Just finally, Paula, what's been the response from, from from people that you've spoken to, particularly in the mental health community, around the work that you've done? And is there any sense of optimism on your part that maybe this could be a bit of a circuit breaker, the fact that we're having this conversation? Mm, I love that we're having this conversation. Thank you for that, because I think it's exactly what it takes. It takes people to be interested and to care about this. It's been kind of invisible for a long time. There is a bit of a sense of optimism. Many of the people who work in this field or uh, are whānau who are dealing with people who have FASD in their households have contacted us to, um, to say thank you for the work because they wanted people to understand how difficult it is. The Waitangi Tribunal here in um, about this issue is um, a real hope for people that there might finally be an acknowledgement that the sale and supply of alcohol in this country is a fundamental issue. FASD has been a part of that claim. So there are some things that are starting to happen that might finally uh, make those who have the ability to affect change sit up and listen. Paula, thank you so much for joining us on Take It From Us. Thank you very much for having me, Kent. I appreciate your time. This is Take It From Us. Real stories, real life, as told by you. And be sure to check out uh, Paula's documentary as well. You can see that on the Stuff website. won't cost you anything to watch. It's called Disordered, and you can check that out on stuff.co.nz. Let's have a chat now to Karen Irving, who is a caregiver of three foster children with FASD. The oldest is nearly 21. Uh, her other two children are 12 and 9. All three have FASD and varying degrees of brain damage. Karen wants to talk about living with FASD, what her children's lives look like now, and also their future. Uh, Karen, we do appreciate your time. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. How are you doing? Good, thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me. How are your kids going? Yeah, they're good. We're really lucky. We've got three children from Orangatamariki. Our um, oldest girl is just turned 20, and we've had her for 10 years. I can't say our first year was delightful with her. It was almost gave up fostering. She was so high needs, but after she was diagnosed, our life changed quite radically and hers changed hugely. Different kid altogether. You wouldn't have known she was the same child. She um, And 
we adore her, and she is her mental age is about eleven, so she finds things difficult in the real world. But she is is a tricky tries hard. She doesn't, mm. and she's honest about having FASD. She will tell people, which is beautiful. Our next one down is about to turn 12. She also has FASD. She's good now. Again, we went through over a year of struggle with her, but right medications, right schools, right help, and she's absolutely gorgeous. Hard work and the fact that she's quite low mental age. She's about five mentally, yet she looks beautiful and is tall, and, you know, people look at her and think, why does she want to do that silly thing? And because she's only a little girl in her brain. And then our youngest one, undiagnosed, but still a handful, more handful at school than for us because we already treat her like a diagnosed child, so things are different for her at home. Um, she's been happy here since day one, which is great. She's Most children, when they come into care, um, especially if ASD kids, spend half the time saying, I want to go back to my old carers, or I want, you're not my mum, or all those horrible information yelling things which upsets caregivers. But she's never done it because we we transitioned her properly and we know how to treat her. So she doesn't. She's always wanted to be here. And in fact, that's sort of our draw card with her to help mm. calm her down. Mm. So that you know, we know you want to be here, Baba. Come and have a cuddle and let's sort this problem out. So she's easier to handle than the other two were in the beginning because we've learned from the other two. Mm. So you know, you learn all the time with children with FASD. But, mm. but the problem for us is not for them, but for us is that. They are a child with mental health issues, and so they can't ever really go in the world, but they're not our children, so we can't keep them forever. I would, but we can't keep them forever. Um, our oldest girl is transitioning out at the moment, so this year is her transition out into the real world, um, which she is nowhere near ready for. She needs to be in assisted living. Um, so that's scary. That's real scary for us, because she has not been accepted into assisted living. Um, which, what will happen is they'll OT will help her find a flat, help her furnish the flat, and then transition her into it. But I, I genuinely think something really bad will happen when that stage gets to that stage. So she's not anywhere near wanting to go. She's mm. freaked out, freaks out at the thought of it, literally dry reaching, sobbing at the thought of leaving home. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, and it sounds like home's the best place for her. Why can't that be a workable solution? Um, for us, financially, we would have to take on another child or I would have to go back to work. Um, but I'd quite happily put a cabin on my property and let her live here and pay board to live here, or, you know, that would be fine. Um, so we could still take on another child. But traditionally, Orangutamariki children, um, once their time is up, they're out of your home. I, I'm not really sure of the logistics, whether it's because they think they need to go out there or or they want to clear up a room for them to put more children in, or I'm just not sure why they have to be gone. But they will not fund her past the age of 21 with us. So, um, But we've been arguing that since she was 18. They wanted her gone at 18. But, I mean, she was nine at 18 mentally, so there was no way she was going anywhere. Um, yeah. But but in Orangutamariki's defence, they try all the time to find other avenues to get funding for her um, without any success. So, Tell us, just to explain for those of us that don't know a lot about the spectrum disorder, what what have you noticed? Well, when they're in a full-on t- full rage, when they've been triggered and they're in a full rage, anything can happen. Our middle one ripped doors off hinges. 
she's ripped three doors off the hinges in her house, like pulled the door jam away from the wall. Our mm. oldest one, in the beginning, she would hurt, like bite, spit, spit loogies in your face, run away, um, like really run away. She made a car and trailer jackknife on the road once. She's made, She's got into a truck with a perfect stranger who drove her 20 k's from where we live because he, she told that person that that's her mother told her to go and get food. And then she got there and didn't have any money, so the truck driver gave her money. She um, And she was only 10 then. She's walked out into swamps, literal swamps, and had chains of policemen have to link arms to get her out of the swamp. Police dog searching for her, gone for 12 hours, and then when she was home, smashing anything she could smash. She'd drag her whole bedroom out onto the front lawn of the property. <laughs> she would, previous caregivers, she threatened with scissors and knives and weapons. Never did that with us. She only ever threatened me once and never did it again. So... Um, because I know how to handle it from my previous job, so it never came up again. But they all have different ways of being triggered, nearly all anxiety-based. Um, they all have quite high anxiety and stress levels. So it's it can be anything can set them off. The silliest thing can set them off. You telling one child that their hair looks beautiful but not telling the other child could set the other child into a screaming tantrum because their hair's just as nice as that person's. So you don't – you have to choose what you say carefully. Mm. You have to realise that they're all there and they all need the equal attention. Um, you have to really know their triggers. And our newest one we've only had since New Year's Eve. So we're still learning her triggers, but she she is – she she's – violent towards you more than other things. So she doesn't as much break things as she hits or mm. bites or scratches or, um, yeah. So And she does that to other children more. Anybody she thinks is weaker than her, she's going to take on because she doesn't like confrontation to her, So, but she brings it on. She doesn't want to. She's, you know, afterwards she's always the cuddliest, sweetest kid in the world because she knows she's hurt and she doesn't want you to not like her or care about her anymore. So you have to, again, choose your words really carefully. So we don't say ow or any of those things which is hurting us because during the trigger, she'll hurt you more for that. So we act, we play it down like it's not hurting, um, and then it stops it quicker. But the oldest girl, she would do – she'd hurt, but she would hurt in defense of herself, really. She'd think because you're walking towards her, you were coming to hurt her, so she'd lash out. She didn't get that, you know, because they don't get things. They don't have – the comprehension at at ten years old, you're dealing with a five year old with brain damage. What what support has your family had from the Ministry of Health? Nothing. I, that's just an easy thing to say. Marinoto have been there after before diagnoses, um, but they don't treat them. I mean, our girl, our oldest girl, was actually banned from the building of Marinoto because she used to go in there and trash it, so she wasn't allowed in there anymore at nine years old. So, because she would trash the place. So, they wouldn't let her back in. So, but eventually, working with me, she got to go back in there. And after she finally got a diagnosis, they saw her to do her medication, which was great. And she had a fantastic psychologist at Marinota who stuck by us, even though she couldn't help us or do anything for us. She came to all the meetings and she said, this kid needs a proper diagnosis and Karen needs support and blah, blah, blah. But they couldn't actually 
give us any support because once she's diagnosed with FASD, she doesn't fit their criteria. And there isn't a place for the child with FASD. There is no public health service for a child with FASD. Nothing. Not one thing. Well, nothing we've ever been offered or told about anyway. If it was reclassified as a mental health disorder or a brain injury as opposed to a behavioural issue, would that change? Oh, huge. Hugely. Because people don't condemn a child who has an actual mental illness. Mm. They don't. If they saw a child in a wheelchair having a tantrum, they wouldn't go, that kid's being so naughty. They go, oh, poor child. But our kids, they go, oh, that age, I should know better than that. Or, you know, they look at you like you're evil, you know, or, you know, like you're letting this child get away with stuff. Well, yeah, I am because she's allowed to. I am letting her spit the dummy and kick back in the playground and, and cry and carry on because really she's only three years old and you'd let your three-year-old do it or you'd pick them up and I can't pick her up because she's eight. You know, so you know, it's, you know people, look at, people look at me strange when my youngest, our new one, is in full-blown tantrum and I go and wrap my arms around her and tell her I love her and rock her and the tantrum slowly subsides and goes away. People look at me like, she was just calling you an effing blah, 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 and now you're hugging mm. her. Well, yeah, I am, because she didn't want to call me that. She didn't have a choice. She didn't know what was going on. She was confused. She couldn't cope, so she lashed out. So, you know, it's not – It's people don't get when they look at these kids because they are beautiful, and I'm telling you, the three of mine are stunning. They could all be models. They're absolutely beautiful to look at children, dressed well, you know, good skin. You know, they're beautiful, really beautiful. And then they say something horrific or they hit somebody or they smash something in front of you and people think you're the devil's spawn. But mm. they're not. They're, and, you know, my heart, I, I'm trying not to cry now because I'm talking about the bit that I'm passionate about. They, These kids with the right help, with the right support, it can actually go all the way. Our oldest girl went right through high school, got her NCA Level 1 and Level 2. Yes, in very simple classes with a heck of a lot of support, but she was still in a supported environment till she was 19. So 19 is unheard of for an FASD kid to be at school. 14 is almost unheard of for an FASD kid to be at school. If you had a message for the Health Minister, Andrew Little, what would it be? I know he's listening to this topic at the moment very closely. He needs to realise that, yes, it's going to cost him a lot of money, but money isn't the issue because the fact these children are a drain on society every day and they are for the rest of their lives, prisons, health systems, schools, everything. They, If these kids had full support in schools, full-time teacher aid, and probably could be three child children to a teacher aid with the right training for the teacher aid, these kids could stay in school. They could be happy in school, which is unheard of. They could go through, right through till they're an adult instead of at 16 being on the dole because they left school at 14 because nobody wants to deal with them. They, they could have a loving environment. They could have caregivers that are fully trained to actually deal with their behaviours, that understand their behaviours, that are not just thinking, oh, if I love this child enough, they'll get better because they won't get better. Mm. They're never going to get better. And what we're doing to them now is making them worse. You, by you not funding us, by you not helping these kids, we're making them worse. They grow up to be drug addicts. They grow up to be alcoholics. They grow up to have children at a very young age because they just want some attention from somebody, anybody. 
They are manipulated. They are used for their money. Our, our oldest girl just spent so much money on a family that didn't need it because they told her to buy their groceries, so she did. She was only there for the weekend, visiting a friend, and she spent all her money, every penny that she earned, because they're gullible, because they just want to be liked. They just want to have friends and family around them. And by you not supporting them and them not getting assisted living when they leave home and them not getting funding for their medication, at the moment her medication costs me $74 a, a month. And I'm okay with that, more than okay with it, because it makes her a better person. It helps her get through each day. It helps her, but you guys don't look after them at all. You do nothing for them, but you will. You will do something for them when they're sick and needing detoxing and all the things that are going to happen to them when they grow up. You will be funding them. You'll be funding their children because they'll drink while they're pregnant. My girl won't because she knows. She knows what it did to her brain, and she will never drink when she's having a baby. Most of them don't know, and they're not even diagnosed because diagnoses can cost between $3,000 and $10,000. What family's got that money? Train some people. Get more people out there that can do the diagnosis. Put it on the public health so that they can come and get their children going. I've got two families that kids will never be diagnosed, but they're treating them like them because I'm working with them. They'll never be diagnosed because they cannot get two children diagnosed. They physically cannot afford to get two children diagnosed. Schools are begging to get children diagnosed, but they can't even get them on the waiting list. Do it with public health. That will save you a lot of money in the long run. It will save the country a lot of money in the long run because we will spend the rest of our lives helping these kids unless we set them up right now. I understood before I knew what it was. So the pills on the table for your own. Love. Oh, I would be nothing without you holding me up. Now I'm strong enough for both of us.
weight in the dirt under me, yeah. I'm gonna shake, throw the weight in the dirt under me, yeah. I'm gonna shake, throw the weight in the dirt, yeah. I'm gonna shake, throw the weight in the dirt, yeah. Gonna shake, throw the weight in the dirt, yeah. Gonna shake, throw the weight in the dirt. The name of that song is Giant by Kelvin Harris and the Rag and Bone Man. Uh, we've been looking forward to this interview now for a little while. Uh, let's bring in James Nakise. He's a New Zealand comedian. He's got a really interesting story to tell about his own relationship with alcohol, the fact that he gave it up a few years ago. Uh, but also James talks about that as part of his comedy act. Uh, he's multi-talented because he's also the host of the podcast Eating Fried Chicken in the Shower. I mean, the name alone makes you want to go and listen to the podcast. James, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks very much for talking with us today on Take It From Us. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. Good. Just uh, readjusting to the to the cold New Zealand temperatures. You've been in Perth for a little while? Yeah. Longer than expected, I'm told? <laughs> a, little, a little bit longer. A little bit longer. A couple of weeks. Ended up staying uh, eight months. Uh, it's a strange job, though, mate. You know, I, yes. I, I couldn't get back here to work, but then I had friends who couldn't get to Perth to work. So we ended up sort of all passing each other work internationally. What What is there to do in Perth for eight months? Uh, dodge spiders and snakes. That's um, you know, I, I looked at a lot of bush, saw a lot of. That sounds that sounds slightly dodgier than I expected that sentence to. Um, but I was out in the bush, walking around, uh, checking for snakes and um, spiders and sharks. When I went into everything, can kill you. That's the main difference. What are we in New Zealand? We've got like a, a parrot. Um, and and over there, even the parrots will drop giant gum nuts on you and give you a concussion. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's a whole it's, different lifestyle. It's fair. Our wildlife is so benign, which is not a bad thing, really, is it? I, sp- I suppose. No, I think the main thing over there is everyone drinks and uh, they've got quite a problem with yes. amphetamines, but that's because they've got the big mining culture and and oil rig culture. So you know those kind of industrial mm-hmm. jobs. Um, so it, you know when you're in town. Yeah, you know, if you're in Auckland or in Wellington, even Christchurch, yeah, you get some drunks walking around. But it does, I think maybe it's the heat as well. It just kind of makes it all a little bit intense when people mm. are off their heads in town. You've got your own quite intimate story with alcohol. Give us some background. Um, well, about uh, six years ago, uh, I was actually in Perth uh, mm. during their Fringe Festival. And uh, I was having a very nice run. Uh, as festival runs go, I'd sold out shows and I'd award nominations. And yeah, that's, that's what you want. I was really depressed. And um, my partner at the time, she was quite confused. Uh, I was confused. Um, my friends were confused because I was fine on stage and I was fine afterwards. But every day it was just getting harder to get up. And uh, so I went to another festival after that. 
and I called up some mates who, uh, who lived nearby and I said, look, I'm, I'm in a spot, I'm in a hole. You know, mm. I was aware enough to know I was in a hole. Mm. Um, can you come and put some eyes on me? Just come hang out for me for a couple of days. So they came down to Adelaide, which is where we were. And, uh, and we drank and we did shows. And uh, at the end of it, they were like, yeah, uh, something's wrong. You're off. Mm. But we don't know what it is. So when I finally got back to New Zealand, and I've been touring Australia for two months at that stage, um, just drinking and performing. Uh, I went to my doctor and I said, look, something's up. And I, I can't. It's a bit weird to go to your doctor when you don't know. Mm. But you do know. You know your body. You know your mind. You know something isn't quite right, but you don't have it. And doctors cost money, so you don't want to waste their time. But mm. so, I, and he was good. He sort of listened to everything, and then um, he asked me a couple of questions. And then he went, "Well, how much do you drink?" And I said, "Oh, you know, as, as much as any other comedian." And he said, "Well, how much is that?" And so I told him, and he went, "Look, um, he's been my doctor for, for uh, you know since I was a kid." So we've got this very strong relationship. So we know mm. he, can, he can talk straight to me. I always say mm. your doctor's like your mechanic. You know? So you've got to be honest or they can't fix you. Um, he said, I think you might be an alcoholic. And I was like, really? Because, and I was generally surprised because to mm. me, I was drinking, um, which is uh, you know, a couple of beers through the day uh, and then a couple of bottles of wine, uh, one, sometimes two uh, mm. each day was just part of the job, part of the lifestyle, you know. I, I drink when I wrote. I drink when I performed. Um, sometimes it was a bit low energy getting up. I had a drink. It didn't seem unusual to me because my whole life involved it. He said, I'm going to recommend you to um, at the Narcotics Anonymous program in New Zealand. And, um, you know, I did a quick phone interview with them on the stairway, and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, you should come see us. I went, oh, okay, shucks. Um, and then they said, oh, can you come in April 1st? And I said, oh, I can't because I'm a comedian, and that date's just not, I'm not going to take this seriously. So they gave me a, a, another thing, and uh, I went in, and they, they assessed me, and, and they said, yeah, you're, you're an alcoholic. Mm. Uh, and, of course, as I'm sure many alcoholics in this position, I went, oh, okay, so mm. when, when can I drink? And they went, no, 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 you're not hearing us. You can't drink. Uh, some people, some people are very lucky and they can start drinking again a little bit, but you're, mm. you're not built like that. So you're, uh, you're going to be done. And so that's, uh, that was, that was six years ago. And you've been sober ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Although I, I do, look, mate, I'll be honest during the mm. pandemic, I do think it should count as two years for each year we've had to do this. That's sure. I, 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 I like to feel like it's been 10 now. Sure. How did, how did you cope with having a label thrust on you by somebody else? It was, you know, it, it was actually interesting because it, to, to, to name it, like I said, I, I've been feeling discombobulated. You know, yeah. I, I knew something was wrong. So to actually have someone name it, was, was it, uh, there was a bit of a relief, um, mm. a bit of shame because, you know, we're in, um, I'm, Armorn and in, in the Pacific, you know, we joke about the alky uncle or the alky. And I'm like, well, hang on. Now I'm in my 30s and I'm the alky? Wait, that can't be right. So, um, yeah, it, it, was, it was very difficult. I wasn't sure how to talk to people about it. Um, and I work in pubs. You know, I, 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 I travel the world. Damn it, that's, that's part of why I started doing this as a job. I wanted to travel the world and, and, and drink and tell stories and laugh with people. But then um, 
because the the way New Zealand is sometimes, our mental health system uh, is not, it doesn't always meet the needs of the people that require mm. it. So they couldn't see me for a month mm. um, because they were filled up. That's not their fault. They had too many people. <laughs> mm. um, but I, I, you know, my doctor had made it clear, this man I trusted made it clear, drinking was, was killing me. So I stopped. And I went cold turkey. And I didn't know that you're not meant to go cold turkey. That's, that's a movie thing. The way you're meant to actually do it is with help, with, with a counselor and, and the slow progression. No one had told me that. So I went cold. And I got withdrawal. So I, 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 I actually went into withdrawal. And for 10 days, uh, I had the worst migraine in the world from about 5 o'clock at night. Because that's when I, I, my, I usually started uh, drinking. And uh, I, if I didn't have a drink, well, I didn't have a drink. So at about, um, it, I just deteriorated over the night. And about one o'clock in the morning, my veins would kind of burst and my neck veins would begin to just feel like they were on fire. And my partner at the time had to go and stay with friends because we would wake up. And the bed would be drenched. I hadn't wet the bed. I had sweated through the entire bed. And, and in a way, that was good because it made it real. Mm. You know, it wasn't just because when you're a performer and you get that kind of stuff, mate, you know, people are like, oh, all right, bro. I'm being a bit dramatic, I think. So to have that actual physical reaction to not drinking. Um, and, you know, and, and my temper was short. You know, I was, I was yelling at people I cared about. Uh, it was confused it, and so to be able to uh, to go, oh, it's withdrawal. Mm. My body's in withdrawal. I am an alcoholic. This is real. My body is fighting. Um, that helped, and then after that was six months. As I was as it was explained to me, my brain had to remake neural pathways that had been dependent on alcohol, and so the next six months, I actually. My brain was really slow, and that was very, very scary. Um, I, I work with words. I work on stage. If you've seen live comedy, you're going to be quick. And to not know if it was going to come back, to, to feel that if I went on stage and someone said something, I might freeze. I might not be able to, to do the things I wanted to do. It's very, very scary. Mm. Yeah, you talk about needing to be quick. You also got to be creative. Yeah. So how did you how did you reconcile that? Trying to be this, a, a creative guy and, and you know bringing your own life experience into your comedy, but at the same time feeling like you're being bogged down by these changes that you'd made. Well, it's um, you know the, I, I, something people don't know about stand up comedy is that it, you you build a club set. So you come up with a joke and you refine that joke and you put it into your, your set. So you're often repeating. So I actually leaned into, uh, I've, I've been doing this now for about 18 years. So I had about a decade's worth of not all good jokes, but I had a decade back catalog and I actually leaned into um, mm. using my older material because the muscle memory and the delivery memory was there. Making new stuff became less of a priority uh, as as uh, until I didn't feel comfortable making new stuff until my brain mm. was up to scratch because it wasn't just speed bro. I was actually using the wrong word. You know how sometimes 
when you're tired, you'll use the wrong word or you'll say a sentence back to front? Happens to me all the time. So I, w- I, w- I was doing that um, in, in interviews and in uh, situations where I was in, in meetings with people and that began to affect my confidence because I thought, oh, my God, maybe I'm, you know, I've, I've got brain damage mm. and this is just how it, how it is now. And um, I do have a little bit of, of, of damage, but it's memory related. I just, I've, I've lost um, mm. some permanent memories. Uh, they, they just don't seem to be there anymore, which is very sad. Mm. But I, I can accept that um, because I, I still have retained my brain and I have met people who have not been as fortunate mm. um, as, as to have that. In immersing yourself in comedy, wanting to be funny, laughing a lot, how has that helped you in the last few years? The joke we always do in the arts is um, comedians are are just people who can't afford therapy. So comedy is really great uh, for processing trauma, whether it's big societal, personal trauma. So I actually made a show um, uh, when I I found I I wasn't in a position to make new work. I I made a show about um, sort of going through this stuff and... It was interesting because I did get pushback talking about being an alcoholic in New Zealand and Australia. And it it was people who were very much projecting their own insecurities about their drinking or their behavior onto me. Um, Mm. And because I was sober, I I didn't rise to any bait that people were throwing out. Actually, what I did was I went back to the drawing board and went, how can I talk about this stuff in a way that if you are feeling that way, you'll hear me. You know, what can I do? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of it, it, it it's actually just finding ways uh, about me being an idiot um, or doing dumb things or just making myself look like a dickhead because when you start talking about not drinking, I think people get worried you're about to preach a sermon to them about the righteousness of sobriety and all that. So if you can go, no, 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 this wasn't me seeing the lights. This was a necessary life change because I was a wreck. And then they're like, oh, okay. In, in the comedy, I mean, I've been to comedy clubs many, many times and they're full of booze. Most yeah. people are drinking, a social lubricant. We know that. Did that take real courage for you to go back into that environment? Do you know, I was, I was very lucky, and I, I, I think I only appreciate this because I go overseas a lot. The New Zealand comedy scene had my back. I, I um, got in touch with the heads of the comedy festival. Within our industry, I, I am at a certain level, have a certain standing, um, and mm. I talked to all the, the bar owners of the, of the main venues around New Zealand that I, I performed in. Yeah, you know, they're not full clubs, but they're places I would I would go every couple of months and, and do sets. And I said, this has happened in my life. Not a single one of them came back with anything negative. Incredibly supportive. Always made sure that even if there was booze for other comics, there was non-alcoholic stuff for me. Let the other comics know, hey, those couple of soft drinks or this, that's for James, all right? If you want a soft drink, come mm-hmm. see us at the bar. Um, but that stuff so um one one guy knew i like drinking red wine so he went and bought sparkling red grape juice 
so he could still pour me a glass. Said, um, which actually in those first couple of months, you know, guys were like, oh, we can just put ginger ale in a small glass if you want to look like you're still taking a drink on stage. Because a lot of bartenders actually have tricks for people who want to look like they're drinking mm -hmm. but not drinking because there's outside of performing, that is actually a situation in bars that, that people have. So they were much more hip to it than, than I was. And so, and, and, but I don't think I could have gone back mm -hmm. into those situations, mate. Um, mm. if, if I hadn't had the support of the venues, I don't think I would have felt safe. I'm not sure I would have been able to overcome the peer pressure in those early months. So the support was essential. How have you been able to help others since you have been telling your story? Um, I, I think just normalizing it, mate, you know, it's, it's, I, I think just saying, Hey, it's not that, um, there's this great demon drink out there. Um, it's that. If you're a person that, you know, it doesn't have to be drink. If you're a person who a, a substance has got hold of and your brain as well, that's actually a lot more normal in our society than we talk about. Um, and and I'm, I'm someone who uh, I, I never talk about like I'm a recovered alcoholic because I still can't drink. I always just say, hey, um, I don't really talk about myself as an alcoholic. My, mm. my counselor was very good. She this lovely old, old lady, I, I won't name her because she likes her privacy, but um, she said, if you can get your brain to the point where you think of yourself as a non-drinker and you understand why you do not drink, that's a really good step. But it's always just a circle. So I'm just at the stage where I'm not drinking. And if I, if I do have a drink, if I come off the wagon, mm. that's, that's just a part of it. That's not a failure that just means you reset and you start again. And I think that's actually the, the thing I've, I've tried to tell people who want to stop drinking um, or who are, uh, have problems with drinking is to not think of it as success and failure, but just think of it as, as something more gentle, mm. less, less pressure. It's good to have you back in New Zealand. What projects uh, have you got coming up or is there anything on the boil at the moment? Do you know, one of the things to come out of my sobriety is a, is, a, is a podcast I do for Radio New Zealand, and it's called Eating Fried Chicken in the Shower. And it's um, a mental health podcast, which comes from um, uh, the, the, those early months in sobriety. And, um, and, and it is all about normalizing mental health conversations. And mm -hmm. it is about, we, we talk to people about addiction and whatnot. Um, that's, that's the main thing I usually point people to. I will be in comedy right. clubs. Um, around New Zealand the next couple of months. Uh, there's no comedy festival this year, sadly. Um, but, uh, yeah, if people want to come down to the, the classic comedy bar in, in uh, mm. Auckland or um, uh, to the Fringe Bar in Wellington, they, they, they might see me mosing around there. I'll, I'll be, I'll be um, at the bar drinking a coffee. <laughs> and they'll know, they'll know to pour you a nice hot one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, the amount of comedy clubs that now serve barista comedy. That's, that's my legacy in this country, mate. Yeah. Well, good for you. And look, lo lovely, lovely of you to come on the program and tell us your story and for being brave and courageous and humble and, and sharing it with us. And we really appreciate it, James, and we wish you all the very best. Thanks very much, Ken.
I am colored. Don't act like you was there when you wasn't. I'm running to exams. Job is for a man. Don't act like you was there when you wasn't. And the law of the land. The women were often banned. Don't act like you was there when you wasn't. I know they say they call for you all. it from us and that is running by Pharrell Williams Uh, we're almost out of time today but of course as we do every week Karen it's time for Sheldon's shout out yes Kent well um, I heard about a couple of young guys from Christchurch this week their names are Mitch Shaw and James Harris and they've come up with a very creative yet practical way of generating donations for local charities so they uh, developed a platform called Upstream, and it works like this. Now, if you want uh, a service or, you say, you're wanting to uh, get an electrician or a plumber or you want to buy coffee or get maybe even want to buy a car, then you go to Upstream, choose one of the tradies or businesses on the site and get them to do the work for you or buy something off them, and then a percentage of their invoice is donated to one of the good causes that's involved with Upstream. All oh, right. Pretty awesome. And in just a few months, they've raised over $130,000 in donations. And they've got this ambitious goal of raising $1 million for charity in the Canterbury region. It's a great idea, I reckon, and one that could easily go nationwide. So if you're listening, you're in the Christchurch region, check out upstream.co.nz before you buy anything. And um, be a great thing for someone else to bring um, all around the country, I reckon. Way to go. Yeah, that's fantastic. Man, those guys are on a roll. That is Mitch and James. Shout out to those guys. Uh, my personal shout out uh, to Karen Murphy for producing our show this week. We had so many great guests on again today. We had Karen, we had Paula, we had James uh, talking about comedy, talking about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Make sure you go and have a look at that documentary, by the way, too, Disordered. You can see that on Stuff. Let's look after ourselves. Let's look after each other. We will talk to you again next week right here on Take It From Us. 
You've been listening to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns, produced by Karen Murphy, executive producer Andrew Dewhurst, made with the real stories and voices from our community. And for that, we thank you. For more information on anything you've heard on today's show or for direction on where to seek further advice or assistance, visit our Facebook page, Take It From Us. Yeah.